Homestyle Green, episode 120. This week I'm talking to Ted Kane in New York about the journey from nomadic cultures through to market-driven zero-energy houses. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. This is the podcast all about inspiring people to make a better place to live. I'm the host of the show, Matthew Cutler-Welsh, and I kind of know a bit about building. I'm not a builder, but I'm currently working as a building surveyor, which means that I get to see a whole bunch of where buildings go wrong, uh, particularly from a leaky point of view. But you know what we're seeing more and more of these days is not so much water getting into a house, although we, do, we still do see plenty of that, um, and buildings, not just houses, but we we see water and moisture getting trapped, and and the the water and the moisture is actually coming from inside the house, and dealing with that moisture is it can be complicated, and it requires good insulation, good ventilation, and ideally some some good temperature control as well. Uh, part of that, if you're building a new home, then Proclimber can help you out. Now, listeners to the show. Uh, we'll know that Proclimber are very good supporters of the show and they are indeed um, sponsors that help us bring the show out every week. So check them out, Proclimber. If you are doing a new build or a renovation, you definitely want to be thinking about making it airtight. And Proclimber have some great products, but they, more importantly, have some really good expertise in airtightness and sealing up a house. And then, of course, uh, you want to get your ventilation sorted as well which uh, they can put you in the, right, in the right direction there too. Proclimate.com or proclimate.co.nz and uh, tell them Matt sent you. On to this week's show, I'm talking with Ted Kane over in New York and he is he set up his own practice about 18 months ago, but prior to that he's doing some very exciting big projects all around the world. And he's also done a bit of research in modern urbanism and nomadic cultures, and we, we talk a little bit about that. Um, we also talk about how he's creating a zero-energy house in New York and the fact that it's being a market-driven project where a developer is uh, is building a spec house that's going to be zero-energy. So that's a very, very exciting um, market trend. Anyway, here he is, Ted Kane, all the way from New York City. So one, the question I'd like to start out with is um, why do you do what you do? Well, I mean, I guess I, um, it goes back. I mean, when I was a, a kid, my family actually moved quite a bit, and we would always uh, – my parents would always buy kind of fixer-upper type houses. Um, so I kind of, as a kid, became kind of fascinated by that process and the, um, you know, the character of these older homes, and that kind of – I became thinking about architecture as a kind of profession. Um, but it was interesting when I went to architecture school after uh, high school, I actually, my interest kind of expanded quite a bit. I had really had no understanding of what architecture was um, right. before that. Um, so this was after you'd started school, studying? What's that? This is as you'd started studying? Yeah. When you go from kind of like, you know, uh, a very simplified idea of what architecture is, when, for me it was like older houses and just being a fascination by the different types of houses, I guess, uh -huh. and the um, character of them. 
And then as you get to architecture school, you realize all the different kind of components that are involved. And also thinking about it as more of a creative pursuit. Um, and that kind of really opened my mind um, in architecture school. And I think that happens to a lot of students as they get there and realize, you know, this it's not really just a um, about history, about the historic um, precedent, but also about new new ideas and new innovations and also your own creative pursuit. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an art form as much as it is an engineering form. So that was what really excited me um, in college and school is that kind of creative outlet. Um, I was always kind of interested in, in photography and drawing. And, um, and when I went to school, I found a real passion there. And that's um, why I really like this profession is that it has that that creative aspect as well as the kind of technical and problem solving. So it brings a lot, I guess, my interests together. So um, I've enjoyed um, the profession and kind of all the different uh, challenges that it, that it brings. So you, did you consider yourself creative first and then technical or um, in, in equal doses? It's pretty equal dose. I mean, it's interesting because um, I don't know if I, uh, if you know, I worked at Morphosis Architects before mm. starting my own practice. So I only started my practice about a year and a half ago, full time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd kind of uh, done some uh, slowly kind of developing my own projects, um, but full time was about a year and a half ago. Um, and Morphosis is a very creative, um, innovative company. So I would say mostly known for its aesthetics, but um, the technical is also a very strong component of it because they're very complicated buildings. Right. Um, so I was kind of trained in that environment where everything is um, kind of very innovative design, but also we actually did our own construction documents and I was the project architect on two of the very, I would say the more complex projects that we did. One was um, in Shanghai, the giant group headquarters. And then um, the one I, my last project there was the Gates mm-hmm. Hall at Cornell uh, university, but they're very complicated projects, but technically, um, as well as design is are equal components of them, you know, that you can't just do the design and then hand it off to a contractor and expect them to do it. Um, we learned as a, as an office that you pretty much have to know how every component goes together. So I, I guess I became known in the office as more of the technical, um, you know, I knew how to get it built. Um, but at the same time, I, I creative goes all the way through the project for me. It's all the way to the sketch of a detail. When you're working with a contractor on site, you still have to think creatively and think about how that detail informs the overall design and that it's, it's not two separate parts, um, you know, of the same, you know, of a project. So I would say a lot of um, architecture firms split that system yeah. where it's a design group and then they hand it off to like the construction document group. Um, for me, and I, I think it was good training at Morphosis, and I do this in my own project, is that all the way from concept design through construction documents, I'm involved completely. And so I know when there's a decision that needs to be made in construction documents or on site, you know, what all the decisions that were made before that, that came up to that point and why it was made. And so a design can be made on the spot that uh, resolves the question that comes up. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point because you you don't often think of the construction process as being the creative stage. You know, the creative mm-hmm. is the the sketches and the concepts and the rough drawings at the, the beginning. But 
I know from being on site that there's problem solving going on all the time, and that yeah. would be a a great asset to have that level of creativity in pro- solving all those little details that sometimes you just can't think at that level, uh, even with the best, I guess, software these days. You still got to solve some problems on site. Right, right. Yeah, and I really enjoy that. I mean, I I did a lot of construction administration um, at Morphsys and. That was especially when I worked on the project in China. There was um, it was pretty much design build on site, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You really have to kind of know the entire project has to be in your head because yeah. you need to, um, you know, solve problems as you see them. And um, but it's also uh, you know the technical part of it is that um, everything is three D modeled. So the projects that I work on. Um, and make sure that everything is three-dimensionally modeled because the design is three-dimensional and it's going to be built in three dimensions mm. um, so that you have to really have the entire project in your mind so that as you're walking a site, you can see if there is something that doesn't match, um, you know, the model. And that's kind of, for me, been a very important aspect of the um, of the whole process is that the technology allows you to really control on site and control the construction quality um, because it's something that can't be drawn um, you know, you do plans and sections, it's really a diagram, but the, it's going to be built in three dimensions. So mm. um, that's the kind of, for me, the, the critical part of the whole process. And I, um, so for our product, for my office, I do everything. Um, I mean, it's called BIM, but it's really a, it's a design process as well as the, um, for construction management. I'm, I'm looking at Cornell University, uh, Gates Hall and, yes. I was going to say it looks simple, but it doesn't really. I mean, there are if you look at it in certain uh, aspects, there are parts of simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. The question I was going to ask was: Does is simple complicated? Is it? Is there a lot of detail that goes into making a building look simple? Yes, I mean, in that project, in a, there was kind of a strategy um, to that project. Part of it was to try and make the um, the form simple because uh, partly for the budget reasons, but also um, the program was very uh, a lot of labs and offices which are don't require a lot of um, you know you would save money on that aspect of the project and yep. then put that into the public space because um, as a computer science um, facility, the idea was to have interaction among people because creativity and um, problem solving comes from interacting with other people and kind of unexpected situations that occur. Right. And so we, the focus of the design was the public space in the large atrium. And then we tried to simplify the rest of the facade, um, the rest of the building to kind of be pretty functional and very efficient, um, environmentally efficient in the, in the way that we um, mechanically um, affected it as well as the facade system, which provides sun shading. Um, so it was a, a fairly simple, straightforward, and that was intentional. So um, there is complexity in there, but it's um, at the detail level, I would say. The facade mm. system um, is a very kind of innovative, efficient um, system. And again, all computerized, so uh, we could all the way through construction um, control that um, system. But it was thought about in a very systematic way, I would say, because uh, we wanted the, a detail that works and then that we can use that detail in a lot of different locations and uh, be efficient in that way. Has any of the experience that you've gained through aspects of that, like particularly the facade and the shading, 
Does that influence mm-hmm. your work in the residential sector now? It does, but um, a little bit differently. I mean, I think in a commercial setting, um, there's a lot more technology involved because you have the, um, you know, an institutional client who's willing to put in the extra money for the, um, uh, the more I- innovative heat recovery systems and the chilled beam for cooling, the radiant systems. So you can do quite a bit um, on the energy-wise. And then when you get to a residential, I, I find it a little bit uh, better, um, I guess because of the scale, better to use less uh, technology, uh, more passive systems where you can you know, just have uh, natural ventilation, natural um, daylighting, um, sun shading, and then use the technology in kind of very limited areas, but um, you know, for heat recovery, uh, maybe for solar panel for um, renewable energy, but I, I think it's a it's a very different. There's technologies that I think I, I'm starting to see come into residential, yeah. And I think they started in commercial um, as technology. And I guess as they become more affordable, they'll become more into the uh, into the residential market. But um, on my projects uh, so far, and I'm doing a townhouse um, now in Brooklyn which we're going to bring some of that um, kind of passive house type technology um, to try and make a you know, zero energy um, and efficient townhouse. And yep. it's going to bring in some of that technology. I think that was more of a commercial um, previously. So would that be things like heat recovery systems and, and balanced uh, air, air control, those sorts of technologies? Yeah. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. The, the heat recovery is a big component of it because you, you're sealing the building and putting kind of super insulation um, to lower the, you know, the, the heating costs, heating and cooling costs, but then you need to really ventilate that air. Um, and that's a, a key component of the whole, the whole process. Yeah. Um, have you got a favorite, uh, what do you use to super insulate? Um, usually it's just, a, you know, XPS or, you know, a, a dense, uh, uh, polystyrene, I guess, probably, mm-hmm. uh, um, yep. Insulation, so so an extruded polystyrene rather than expanded. Yeah, extruded. I mean, it's a better, um, more efficient, so you don't need as much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, usually probably almost ten inches of that if you want to get ten the, um, inches. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you're talking well above the building code and the standards there. Yeah. Well, this project is still in design, but we're looking to get as much. Um, it's actually a townhouse. So we just have northern and southern exposures. Yeah. Now, and, and a townhouse to me means small. Uh, it's about four thousand square feet, so it's okay. Four, four <laughs> it's not, stories, not that small. Yeah. But are um, you are you constrained? Um, oh, did you say four stories? Four stories. Yes. Right. So are you constrained um, uh, on the sides and front and back? Pretty constrained. It's actually in a historic district as well, so right. the the front facade is um, has to be somewhat contextual. Pretty free, open in the back and the you know the roof. Um, but you know, the, the, I'd say the passive house um, kind of model works well in New York because the lots are already rectangular, extruded. It's a very efficient for right. that type of shape. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of and this is actually. Uh, a spec house that we're building for a developer, um, he had or an investor. So we don't have a actual client right now, but um, 
the plan is so it's either a two family or a one family so it has to have some flexibility in the design um wow so green. they they are seeing their banking on the on the sellability of a zero energy house or near zero energy house yeah and i think i mean part of it as i'm bringing in that interest to them and they're open to that um, is that right know. so they, they didn't come to you saying we want to build a spec house that's going to be zero energy and then sell it on that basis no, they didn't come to me with that in mind. Wow. Um, so how did you convince them? Well, it was kind of – I mean, I brought them some research, and there's actually been a lot of publicity on that in New York City because there's a few developments going up right now, actually a couple that have just um, gone on the market. And so they see that there is a kind of uh, interest in the public in this because there's been a big push in New York City with the mayor um, – I think it's called the 2025. Uh, he wants to reduce by, I believe it was 75% the energy use by the buildings in New York City. Right. Um, so they've spent a lot of kind of publicity about it, and it was an article in the New York Times. And so it wasn't too difficult to convince. And I think there is um, the idea that there is, because it's a very, it's a small kind of boutique development, a single family to two family. Um, so it'll require a special buyer, and this would be something to set it apart. So I think there is a, um, you know, some benefit for just the um, perhaps added value of a buyer being willing to spend more for the energy efficiency. Yeah, because a typical developer, they're just going to say, well, how much extra is that going to cost me? And right. am I going to see that return from a premium sale price? Mm-hmm. So. Those must have been asked, those questions. Yeah, those have been asked. Um, I mean, we still haven't done the final calcs. We're in kind of schematic um, design, but based on, you know, we're already factoring that in, you know, that yep. it's going to be triple paned uh, glass and extra insulation. And it's not really proportionally that much more. I mean, once you're putting in the expense of, you know, the construction itself and the structure, that these expenses are actually pretty minor because uh, as you become more efficient, your mechanical systems can be smaller. And there's other trade-offs that, um, you know, cost benefits that I think are going to reduce. I don't see the cost being that much more than a a typical construction. Are there any subsidies for installation? New York State does have, yes, there are actually, but they're not, I would say they're not something that would incentivize you to do it versus not do it. It's it's something that it's going to... they provide an incentive, which basically will cover your energy calculation. Like if you have a, um, you go through the HERS program, so you need to have a um, inspector come out and test. And um, we're going to have a you know a special consultant for that, and the incentive will basically cover that cost. It's, right. You know, so it won't won't really cover any material costs, but it'll it'll help you do the calculations beforehand to figure out what right what, what you need. Right. Yeah. So it comes back from the. Um, from that program. So, so it'd be nice if there were larger benefits. Yeah. Although, uh, the flip side to that is that it's, I think even more exciting that there's a market driver there, which is a lot more sustainable than, mm-hmm. uh, if you're relying on a artificial mechanism to, um, get that momentum happening. Right. Yeah. I think there's, um, you know, there's progressive New York is good about, you know, the, I guess the density of New York, you have all types of people, but there's enough, um, of those, you know, people interested in sustainability and, um, 
energy efficient houses that there is a market for that. Yeah, sure. So ballpark figure, you you say that you get some savings back. As a percentage, what would be the extra cost that you think the triple glazing and the super insulation? How much extra is that going to add? Well, I've, I mean, based on other projects that are being built right now in New York City um, that are just opening, they've they've said around five percent. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly, some of them were saying it was um, negligible. So um, it's hard to say right now until we really figure out the um, you know figure out the whole mechanical system. But um, I'm thinking somewhere in the five percent range will be the um, the extra, which is very reasonable given that you can then uh, discount some other costs uh, from that. Yeah. And, and potentially, you know, charge, you know, maybe you could get a better price on the market mm, for certainly um, it's going to be a better product for the buyer. Right. Yeah, definitely. So I think people will be looking for that. And, you know, uh, if they're, if they're looking for that, there's not that many on the market. I mean, percentage wise, so there would be a premium for it. Complete different. Uh, well, not completely different, but, um, Looking at your research, what's the link between contemporary urbanism and nomadic culture? <laughs> well, I think what's what's uh, you're referring, I guess, to the book that I wrote. Yeah, and, and some of the research that you're involved in. Well, what the research I've been – I mean, I used to live in Los Angeles before I moved to New York. I moved here about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and Los Angeles is a very – I mean, it's been written a lot, but it's um, a very nomadic culture and the fact that it's a very um, mobile culture, people, um, and also pretty pretty new as a development within the last hundred years. So it doesn't have the kind of deep roots of of European urbanism or even New York City, where it has um, more of an established kind of mm. mercant, you know, downtown. So so Los Angeles is always very spread out, and um, and I was finding that as technology develops, that is. Um, allows for more, even more no, mobi- mobility because of communications and um, technologies to be able to to ba- basically work from anywhere. So there's no need for the city to be a, a fixed location that you could be in the middle of the desert in California and still be working on a project um, anywhere in the in the country or the world. Yeah. So I think cities are becoming. It's less important that they're fixed in one location, which gives more flexibility to the individual yeah. to, to relocate anywhere. And so I was researching what that meant to the, to the form of a city. Does it mean that it can re-adapt itself instead of um, being a strong hierarchy between a downtown and a suburb? Are there different forms that are going to develop because of this new nomadic um, way of living? And I was speculating that there are ways that the cities will basically communities will reconfigure based on interests or other, um, other driving factors. Um, and obviously I that, guess, I guess what you're describing is almost like a digital downtown instead of a physical one. And that will have implications for architecture. Yeah. I guess, um, forms that can, you know, people that come together for an interest rather than they're there because of, um, some other, um, requirements of real estate or other, um, you know, other reasons. But I think uh, one of my other interests is, you know, I, I came, when I went to UCLA, it was also for an urban planning um, degree and I took urban kind of studies programs there yeah. as well. And for me, it's been really interesting that 
um, I mean, from the sustainable standpoint as well, that cities are actually much more efficient because once you get people in more of a dense environment per capita, their energy use is much lower than versus a suburban environment. Um, so for me, it's, it's interesting to think about urban form as more of, I mean, a big picture, it's, it's, you can build a more efficient city rather than people living in the suburbs and individual houses. So even if you make a, a really super efficient house, if it's a suburban house, there's a lot of other energy use that's being wasted to accommodate that house from the, the car that needs to drive to go there and the roads that yeah. need to be built. Um, so is that, much- is that a dichotomy that's occurring where you're getting the um, technology is facilitating urban sprawl, right. but that is actually less efficient than like an old city like New York where, where it's denser. Is that a problem? Yes, I think it is a problem that um, in some ways it's an issue of infrastructure. And I think Los Angeles developed around the infrastructure of the freeway system, mm. which um, was subsidized yeah. um, in the night, starting in the 1950s. To car city. Yeah, and it gave the incentive to – and I think it happens in, um, in the real estate market as well because you're given um, mortgage tax credits – to, to go towards a mortgage, which incentivizes a larger house. And, you know, suburban has kind of grown out of that kind of incentivized system. And it's not taking into account the factor of um, the subsidized, you know, government-built freeway systems and so forth that are encouraging it and creating more, um, you know, smog and waste in yeah. that way. So I think yeah. – um, I think it would be better to use that money to incentivize, you know, either a high-speed rail system or public transportation, more dense housing, um, so that you can basically the city needs to be more sustainable, not just the individual houses. It needs to be more of a, um, you know, at a larger um, viewpoint, I guess. And as an architect who is essentially designing and building one house at a time, how, mm-hmm. how can you possibly influence that? Um, well, I guess that's part of why I do some of the research and the writing I do is to kind of think about those things because mm-hmm. a lot of times as an architect, it's frustrating because you're kind of the last person to come into the picture a lot of times. Right. Where, you know, or someone has, oh, have, right, I've got, yeah. my, I've got my piece of land it's way out here now build me a house. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Our developers already bought the land. They've already subdivided. They've yeah. already you know, made these decisions that, you know, you look at the big picture and it's not good for maybe the um, development of a city to be, to be doing it. But, mm-hmm. but then you're given a small piece of that and you want to make it, you know, of course your piece is efficient and is, you know, creative and, you know, bring joy to that site that you've been given. Um, but it's frustrating as well that you didn't have an opportunity to, um, you know, to have a discussion about the bigger pictures. I think architects in a lot of time, a lot of ways have lost that influence um, as a kind of urban um, designer. It's been given, and that was also part of my book research as well, is that I was, discovering that a lot of urban decisions now are being made by corporations because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the telephone corporations basically are private now and right. used to be that infrastructure was developed by the government. So mm. 
you know, the roadway is equal access to everybody, but um, now infrastructure as it's built privately, they're building it based on what the market demands and where the market is. So if you don't have phone service in your neighborhood, it's because maybe your, your neighborhood isn't desirable to the, to the phone service. Mm. And it's, so it's a kind of a dangerous model that, um, you know, if we keep going with this kind of the market knows best model, you know, it's not good for the, the greater good of a city to um, have these pockets of kind of wealth and then pockets of neglect um, that come out of that market system. Um, so those, those are some ideas. I mean, I, I think that's part of the, um, I guess, government's role. And, and, and I think as an architect, you have to kind of bring up those, those issues to, um, you know, look to the future and kind of see how things are developing and, and bring up your concerns about that and how, um, cause I think it happens so quickly with technology that, um, that you don't even realize it's happening, you know, that the, um, this technology is taking over the way that we work through the internet and the phone system and displacing these previous systems, which were more government controlled. So now you have a free market, which in some ways is liberating. Like I said, you now have the freedom to work from anywhere, but yep. at the same time, you're under the control of that technology. Yeah, they now, yeah. they know where you're at, yeah. they know what you're doing. So it's, it, there's a trade-off, and I think it's a matter of kind of making that um, evident and, and looking at alternatives, you know. And as an architect, you've chosen to go beyond just your standard practice by writing and uh, publishing books, uh, uh, doing research, contributing in other ways to get right. their message out there. Do you, do you think there's a responsibility for architects uh, in across the board to do that? Um, I don't know if I'd say responsibility, but I think – it would be good for architects to think beyond the building, um, mm -hmm. you know, because some, uh, sometimes the client will come to you with not really having a, an, an idea of what's best or what's not. And so you have the kind of obligation to be that kind of mentor and to, um, to assist them. And I, you know, I think to always, a lot of times, I mean, I kind of get this feeling, I don't know if it's the case, but I get a feeling a lot of times that architects, are being treated as technicians, you know, where they're here just to, okay, I need a building and make sure it's to code. And then, you know, that's all I need. Mm. And an architect that just takes that and says, okay, I'm going to build it to code. And that's all I'll give you. Um, you're losing a lot there because there's so much more that we can bring to the table, you know, yeah. from our research, um, you know, our experience in kind of the creative fields, but also urban ideas and, um, as well as our architectural education, I think there's a lot of different aspects that we can bring to a project and we're selling ourselves short if we're just giving the client what they want, which might not be, you know, what they need or what they even, maybe they don't know what they want. So I think um, I try and bring kind of um, all that background to each project and, you know, and sometimes it's not needed or used, but you know, I want to bring kind of an extra benefit and not just be a technician for them uh, to um, to give them what they expect. You know, it's yeah, yeah. For I me, that's the challenge of the project is to to find something. You know, to bring um, new ideas and to explore what you know to push each project as far as you can as you can go. I love that idea of not just giving them what they want, but figuring out what they actually need, which I can imagine would be quite 
not an easy process sometimes to figure out what they need. Right. Yeah. I mean, hey, it's, um, it's a debate. Yeah. I will have to wrap up um, soon, Ted. But if someone is starting on a project, they're embarking on a, a new build or a renovation. What are sort of top three tips that you'd give them? Well, I guess, I mean, for me, the site is very important. I mean, I guess I would recommend getting an architect involved, but um, in the selection really process, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would help because, like I say, a lot of times you, with if it's a very technical and complicated process, and yep. as a single homeowner, which you've never built probably before. An architect is an advocate who will help you through that whole process. Um, yeah, right. You know, when you're working with an institution, they've probably built many buildings before, and so they they have a better idea of what questions are going to come up or what questions should be asked. And mm-hmm. I think as an individual homeowner, it's going to be very difficult to know, um, you know, what the, even the questions are. So you really need somebody um, as an advocate there. Yep. Um, and then for for me, it's really about looking at how you live because the real opportunity in building a house is really to make it individual to your needs because a lot of houses are are kind of generically built. They're kind of built based on a real estate model of maybe yeah. you know, two bedrooms and then you need a half bath here. And um, to me, there's a lot of lost opportunity there that if you're going to build a house that it should be to your needs and um, the way that you live and the kind of um, the family that you have, because every, you know, every need is going to be a little bit different. Um, And so I would think clearly, or I guess think more about how, how you live and kind of um, how you want to incorporate that into your house rather than just accept the um, given model. I think a lot of times homeowners, they, they learn from the real estate market, you know, that I need to do this because it's going to resell. Yep. Um, But I think that's a, that's not, I don't think that should be the incentivizer. It should be, you know, this is a place that you're going to live. It's really an important part of your life. And uh, if your family is going to be there, then um, that should be the focus, the main focus. Nice. Hey, uh, Ted, where can people find, uh, find you and find out more about uh, your practice and, and your, your book as well? Sure. Well, I guess my website would probably be the best way. Um, so my firm is Kane Architecture and Urban Design, which uh, is kane-aud.com. Mm-hmm. And I think I have le- links from there to uh, my book. My book is called Polar Inertia, uh, Migrating Urban Systems. And um, that's available on Amazon and um, through a distributor as well. If not, I'll be sure to uh, link up to that so people can find that and, and find some. You've got some really nice images on your website. It'd be good to get uh, a few more of some of the, the previous work that you've done on, on there. Yeah, I've been, you know, I've just been so busy. I'm going to put up um, a few things the next probably month or so. I'll try and get nice. them up before. <laughs> yeah, because, you, yeah, I mean, you got some um, a couple of – uh, residential properties at the moment, which um, people can uh, have a look at, but I'm sure that there's a lot more that you've been working on. Yeah, I mean, I do a mix of commercial, um, larger projects, mostly in in China. It seems like in um, outside the U.S., I can get the bigger projects um, and competitions, and then in the U.S. projects tend to be more residential right now, smaller projects and um, right. mix of projects. So. Then working uh, in China, that's that's a whole other topic. 
we won't, <laughs> won't go into that today, but that's fascinating. And uh, I guess a, a, just a, an even a global example of what we were talking about before about being able to, to work anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different, I think, probably than architecture 20 years ago. I know um, at Morphsis, Tom Main had started in, in Santa Monica when it was a small, you know, almost like a small little village and they had little houses and you never imagine that, you know, starting out of practice now, you can work in, um, I mean, a project in Abu Dhabi and in China. Wow. And so, you know, you can work all over the place. It's yeah. um, technology allows that, nice. which is exciting, but it's, uh, it also means you're working on many different scales and many different sites. So it can be a little bit, you know, exhausting. Because... Yeah. With a bunch of different codes as well. I mean, right. Yeah. So I like, I like the New York project because I can, you know, really tap into the, you know, the local environment and focus yeah. very yeah. closely on the, all the way through construction. So a lot of times the China projects, you only go through design um, and then you have to hand it off to a, a local institute. So you kind of lose control a little mm. bit. Mm. Very good. Hey, well, thank you very much, Ted. I really appreciate all your right. time. Uh, I know it's Friday thank evening you. for you, so <laughs> um, let you get on. All and right, well, um, thank, yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, and we'll we'll stay in touch. Okay, thank you. Cheers, Ted. Ted Kane there, all the way from New York, and gee, it's it's great speaking with some of these architects uh, that I've had the pleasure to speak to recently. Kind of makes me inspired to want to become one myself. So, and and just the um, projects that Ted's involved with, I mean, the the fact that there's a market drive, or he's able to convince a developer in the middle of New York to aim for, if not a zero energy house, then close to it. And that there's, they can see a, a benefit from doing that from a resale point of view. I think that's really, really exciting. Um, and that it's not a um, being driven by a government policy or, or subsidies or anything like that. This is pure market-driven forces. So hopefully that's a really positive sign for things to come. If you enjoyed this episode of Homestyle Green, I'd love it if you could head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and or a review there. And tell your friends. Also, contact me, Matthew at homestylegreen.com. Love to hear from you. You can post a question on the show notes for this episode over on the website, or you can find me on Facebook or on Twitter as well. Don't forget to check out the very good folk at ProClimber. If you are looking at doing a renovation or a new build, then you should be looking at making it airtight and ProClimber are the people that you want to talk to for doing that. We've got links to them from our website, homestylegreen.com, so they're pretty easy to find on the web. Thank you very much for tuning in. I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Now go make a better place to live.